You are listening to The Wildlife. Hello, everyone. Before we get started, and because this ties into today's theme, we wanted to take a moment to just say thanks. Thank you to those who have been with us since the beginning, and to those who have joined us along the way. This episode is the finale of our first season, and for the next couple of months, we will be stepping away to work on the next one. So far, this show has already undergone a lot of change. Mostly, hopefully, for the better. We started this thing with an idea, but no clear idea of where to take it, or even what we'd be doing for the next episode. Honestly, we both got some cheap mics, some free programming, and jumped right in. And as soon as we'd finished one episode, it was sort of like, well, what do you want to do next? But a few things remain consistent. The goal, and that with each episode, we got a little bit better. We might be taking a break from putting up new episodes for a couple of months, but the work is just getting started. Consider this our metamorphosis. We are planning out and working on the entire next season, asking questions and going wherever the answers take us, and searching for the best guests that we can find to help us along the way as we transform ourselves and the show to be the best that it can be. If you stick around at the end of the episode, we'll give you a bit of a preview of things to come, and I hope you enjoy. What he's trying to say is that we've been caterpillars and we're going to become beautiful butterflies. Yeah, uh, Richard, I, I think they probably get the metaphor. Oh, sure, but, you know, just in case someone didn't, you know, catch that. This is Devin. And Richard. And this is a Wildlife. First off, he's real cute. So, to make the thing, looks like he's, like, twerking his whole body. Okay, so earlier this week, I sent around a video and I asked people to record some of their reactions. Okay, so number one, I don't think I've ever watched this fully. Wait, wait, so what are they looking at? Uh, well, let's see. Um, right about at this point, it's a time-lapse video. And, and right about here, there's this thick caterpillar. And each segment of its body is pretty much the same symmetrical pattern. Trimmed in yellow, with a black tiger stripe reaching about halfway down, a bold white stripe, and a bold black line down the center. And then the same, but in reverse order, because it's, you know, symmetrical. And it's just sort of doing crunches, almost in a J shape, but it's just hanging there. Is it a monarch? Yeah. This is amazing. Absolutely crazy amazing. What's it doing? And I'm rather jealous of the butterfly, or the caterpillar's ability to do those little constant sit-up things to make the cocoon. Well, as it's hanging there, it's sort of, it just looks like it's sort of pulsing. But as it does, this green blob begins to form on the back near the head. And it just starts to form around the whole body. Here, you can start watching now. And before you know it, you can start to see the wings of the butterfly through the sides, and then it emerges. And then it just flies away, like like without even pausing. 
That's just insane to see. Starting at a young age, we're all introduced to this idea. Caterpillar uh, go build him own a cune, uh, uh, go make uh, him both fly. It's an idea that we can carry with us and adapt and reapply as a metaphor for our own lives. This idea of becoming something new and beginning again is something better. But behind this idea is a process. And despite our lifelong exposure, most don't really know exactly what's going on. Like the color change is what gets me. I don't understand how it goes from being a little, little yellow and white and black caterpillar and how that yellow, white and black caterpillar turns into and it's orange. It's orange. Where does the orange come from? Like, Wait, I don't get it. What? I mean, so the caterpillar forms its cocoon, right? And then it just sort of grows wings and changes. See? Okay, so I guess I don't entirely know what happens in the cocoon. Chrysalis. What? Chrysalis. Okay, so a cocoon is a case that's often constructed by silk, but a chrysalis, well... You know what, we'll get there in a few minutes. On today's episode, we are going to expose the mystery of metamorphosis. What happens inside of the chrysalis, whether or not a butterfly remembers or a caterpillar knows. We're gonna destroy the metaphor and we're gonna build it anew. But first, we have to start at the beginning. So start at the start. Yes, we are going to start at the start. Can I back up a little bit for the big picture? Who's that? Oh, that is our guest for the day. My name is Martha Weiss. She's a biology professor at Georgetown University. And I'm here in hot, humid Washington, D.C. And as she explains it, to understand metamorphosis and why it even happens in the first place, you first have to understand... Caterpillars and butterflies, of course, are the exact same animal, but mm -hmm. they have totally different jobs in their life cycle. The caterpillar's job being to eat and eat and eat and eat the hungry caterpillar, you know? Eat, eat, and get fat. Whereas the butterfly's job? Is to reproduce and to disperse. And so part of what makes metamorphosis such a successful life history innovation is that each um, phase, the, the larval phase and the adult phase, can be totally specialized for their job. And each specialty requires different special parts. And it's that transformation between functions that's really taking place inside of the chrysalis. Okay, so you've said chrysalis a bunch of times now. Is that the same thing as the cocoon? Patience, Padawan. We're not there yet. And what happens prior to metamorphosis is that the caterpillar chugs along and does its job, and, and it, it has larval stages, which are called instars or stadia, and um, it's an invertebrate, so just like a, a soft-shell crab or something, it molts, and it will shed its um, head capsule. Which is sort of like a bicycle helmet that it wears. And its skin, which is kind of a sleeping bag, and then it eats until its sleeping bag gets too tight and its bicycle helmet gets too tight, and then it will get rid of both of those, and there'll be bigger ones inside, and it'll fill those up until it gets big enough to undergo pupation. And they go through like five or so of these stages, eating and molting and eating and molting until... And then by the time the caterpillar gets pretty big, um, at its last instar, 
um, there's a hormonal change, and there's a hormone called juvenile hormone that um, the levels of juvenile hormone drop and the levels of another hormone called ecdysone peak. And when the JH drops and the ecdysone peaks, then that triggers the caterpillar to enter what's called the prepupal phase. And this is where the fun begins. Wait, so it's all hormonal changes that start the whole thing? Yep. Like puberty? Pretty much. And what it does there is it empties its gut, it stops feeding. And it sort of just starts to wander until it finds a spot to form its chrysalis and begin the process of metamorphosis. Finally. Okay, so here's where I kind of have to tell myself a little bit. Last summer, I worked at a state park and our intern used to raise monarchs, pretty much from caterpillar to butterfly, all time, all summer. And I'd sit there and I'd, and I'd watch them do what they're doing in this time lapse here, you know, forming the chrysalis and, you know, eventually becoming a, a butterfly and, and all of that. How fast is it in person? It, it's actually pretty fast, just a couple of minutes. Really? Yeah. I was pretty shocked the first time I saw it. But see, like in the video, you start to see this green patch form and slowly spread around and up the body, sort of bulging outward. And see, I always thought that they used some sort of like, I don't know, silk or, or secretion to do this, but I was way off. So what do they use then? It comes from the inside. What? Yeah. So... If it was an outside silk case or something like that, then yeah, that that would be something called a cocoon. But instead, well, you know how they molt? Yeah. Okay, so here's where it's kind of freaky. There isn't anything growing around the body. Rather, the last layer of that larval skin begins to peel away right at the head. And it just unzips around the whole body. It's where the caterpillar is anchored with silk. That casing, that green blob you see revealed it's already beneath the skin cool but really creepy right well what's it made out of martha doesn't know for sure uh she said i guess it is chitin which is what uh most insect bodies are made out of by the way it is chitin did you look it up yeah oh okay well, now we know. So, yeah, so, so it's chitin, and at first it's really soft, and then it hardens up. And that's the stage of life that we would call the pupae. Metapod used harden. Yas. Okay, so then what happens? Because I've heard that the caterpillar basically just melts away and somehow reforms. See, so have I, and I've always found that incredibly, incredibly fascinating, because then it's like... How does something reform after melting, right? And in fact, I was in a class before where we cut into a chrysalis with a scalpel, and it basically started to just ooze. This sort of thickened liquid, like a brown liquid with coffee grounds in it. Depending on the species, I've heard that that might be white or yellow, whatever, but no caterpillar. It's certainly not like on a bug's life where you just have this caterpillar sort of just popping out wings, but you see, I've also held a pupae before and I've had it twitch around and move in my hand. So clearly not everything's gone, right? There's gotta be something in there allowing it to move. So I asked twice, 
if I were to shrink down and climb inside, what would I see? It's kind of in between the two. Much of the larval tissue does in fact melt away. The stuff that the butterfly won't be needing. Certain muscles and body parts disintegrate, and the cells all die through this process that's called programmed cell death. And that's what forms this soup or broth. So what is left of the caterpillar in that broth? Well, there are some parts that remain which sort of just get reinvented. Reimagined. Like what? So, for example, the, the, um, the midgut, the intestine, is mm-hmm. pruned and changed because the, the diet of the caterpillar is leaves, 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 and so they need a, a, a nice long gut to be able to get the food value out of all the leaf material that's passing through their gut. But the butterfly generally drinks nectar, so they need a different gut morphology. And they have to breathe still, right? So The way that a caterpillar and a butterfly breathes is through these things that are called tracheal tubes. So there are little tiny holes in the sides of the caterpillar that um, have little tiny uh, silvery tubes that, that go toward the inside and ramify inside the tissues. And they deliver oxygen, gaseous oxygen in the air to the cells inside. So the butterfly is going to need tracheal tubes also, but the destinations are going to be different. So the wing muscles are going to need a lot of oxygen. So the tracheal tubes are going to um, expand around where the where they're going to provide um, oxygen to the wing muscles. And of course, the wings are going to develop. Okay, but what about the rest of the body? There isn't much or any goo when it emerges. So where does it go? Ah, That's where the metaphor gets even better. So when a caterpillar hatches out of its egg, just from the very earliest days, there's some tissue inside of it that is that these little areas of tissue are called imaginal discs. Imaginal disc. Little pairs of cells that have a particular destiny. And they're little areas of cells that are not yet differentiated, but they are going to become adult structures. And as the caterpillar goes about its business using... Is its caterpillar machinery to eat and get bigger. These cells are just lying in wait. Biding their time. And at that same time, those hormonal changes begin as the caterpillar begins to wander before forming its chrysalis. These imaginal discs, they begin to differentiate. They begin to become what they were meant to be. In some species, if you were to cut beneath the caterpillar's skin, beneath where the chrysalis will eventually form, you can start to see little wing buds forming. And these little little bits of tissue that are destined to become wings or antennae or compound eyes that are sitting around waiting um, until the time is ripe, and then they'll start developing. So we have programmed cell death of the larval stuff that we don't need anymore, And then we have proliferation and differentiation of the imaginal discs to start building the wings and the antennae and the compound eyes and the the long legs and all of those things that the caterpillar is going to need. So that's all going on inside the chrysalis, um, hidden from our view. So in a way, it's like the butterfly they'd one day become was inside from the beginning. Yeah, and the goo? It's like a super nutritious broth of ingredients that basically are just used to build the new parts. 
Okay, yeah. So that that does make a, the whole metaphor better. I know, right? It's like, don't you see? You've had it in you all along. That's pretty fascinating. How how long does it take the whole process of reinvention? So it depends on the generation. Um, so for the butterflies that I'm most familiar with, the silver spotted skippers, um, I can tell you that it takes them uh, about twelve and a half days. So so a couple weeks. Once once sure. they pupate before they emerge as butterflies. But so that's that would be the generation. You know, so we have caterpillars. We have the butterflies show up in June, and then um, we have two. We have three generations here. So right, so there'll be two um, pupil phases in the summer generations, and then in the fall, those caterpillars will pupate, and then they will hunker down for seven months. So they'll hunker down in um, October, November, and they'll emerge in May. So those guys are, um, if they emerged in two weeks in the beginning of December, that would really be kind of a bad strategy because um, there would be nothing for them to eat and nothing for their uh, babies to eat. So they, sure. they enter a winter diapause. So for temperate butterflies or moths, there generally is um, uh, there'll, there'll be a different duration, a different pupil duration, depending on when we're talking about. So the guys in the summer, when there's plenty of food around for both the caterpillars and the butterflies, they try to pump out as many generations as they can, and then sure. um, they need to to sort of button up shop and hunker down for the winter, so that they can then emerge in the spring. I will say that not all butterflies overwinter as pupae. Butterflies can overwinter as butterflies and moths can overwinter as eggs, as caterpillars, as oh, wow. pupae, or as adults. Or like the monarch from the time lapse video, they migrate to a pine-filled mountainous region of Mexico every winter. What triggers their emergence? Is it a hormonal thing there too? Uh, that's a great question, and I honestly don't know the answer to that question hormonally. I expect that there is some hormonal pulse or uh, either either an increase in some hormone or a decrease in some hormone that triggers um, eclosion, but I don't know sure. exactly what the what what the hormone uh, signal is. Okay, all right. What are you thinking? Well, I've always been curious. After going through such an intense change where much, I guess not all, but much of you dissolved into goo, what remains? Is a butterfly like a blank slate or do they remember? Richard? Yeah? I've wondered the same thing for my entire life. And that is exactly why I reached out to Martha Weiss. Because she knows. She's tested it. How do you even test that? So what we did was we trained caterpillars to avoid an odor. Now the way they did it sounds a little bit mean, sounds a little bit sadistic, but she assured me that it was a lot less awful sounding for them than it would be for maybe us. What she did was she exposed the caterpillars to a gas. And then after doing so, we gave the caterpillars a mild electric shock. Eight times. So that they could develop a, a real aversion to that odor. 
And after that, they put the caterpillars in a mace. Called a Y-tube, which is exactly like it sounds. We've got one long branch and then the two branching off portions. In the portions that branch off, one of them was filled with that gas, the one that they had already been exposed to. The other one had clean air. 100% of the time, the guys that had been shocked in association with the odor chose the arm of the tube that just had clean air. They avoided the hmm. odor. The caterpillars chose the side with clean air. And I've got to give them credit on this. I'm all about looking for confounding variables in where things might have interfered with an experiment or making sure that things were taken into account. And they really covered their bases. And I should um, back up and say that we did um, preliminary tests to see how they felt about about the odor because if they hated the odor originally, then it would have been hard to figure out that they were having an association with the the electric shock, right? Turned out that it was 50-50, that half the caterpillars went one way and half the caterpillars went the other way. They seemed not to to find the odor particularly distasteful at all. They tried it all sorts of different ways to make sure that it was controlled. If we just shot them, it was 50-50. If they were exposed to the odor after being shocked, it was 50-50. And so it was only the ones that we gave the odor, and then while they were smelling the odor, they got the shock that avoided the odor arm. Then, five weeks later, when they emerged, we tested the moths in the same Y-tube. And what they found... The moths that had learned to avoid the odor as caterpillars still avoided it as adults. Implying that they remembered. Yeah, but is that memory memory or is that reflexive muscle memory? Well... That's a good question, and, and I guess my response is, I mean, really, what is a memory? I mean, I'd, I'd count them as the same. I mean, when I smell salmon, I want to throw up because I had bad food poisoning over a year ago. It's sort of primal and reflexive, but it is a memory. It might not be some sort of higher thought, like me thinking about my childhood or, you know, the, the typical therapy. What were your parents like? You know, that sort of a thing. But it, it's still a memory. Good point. Can they measure this with any other senses? Well, no. And there's a few reasons for that. If you think about your other senses, hearing, eh, that's a little difficult to test uh, between the two because parts are different. Same with vision. Caterpillars have really, really simple vision. Pretty much can only detect changes in light. Whereas... Butterflies and moths have very complex vision. They've got compound eyes, and they can see a wide variety of the visible spectrum. So comparing between the two would be pretty difficult. Touch is also a little bit different. The reason that we chose a, a gaseous odor was because we wanted to be super careful not to have something inside the caterpillar's gut that when the chrysalis, um, when the when the moth emerged from the chrysalis that there could be some meconium or some smell that would trigger that memory. So we wanted to have an ephemeral odor. We didn't want to have anything that was on their body or in their body that could potentially trigger the memory. So that's why we chose a, 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 a gas. The one that remains fairly consistent is smell. Okay, and got to ask this for a friend. All right, yeah. So does a caterpillar know what it's doing when it forms a chrysalis, that it will become a butterfly? I, I would be very surprised if a caterpillar thought, okay, 
is my last meal as a caterpillar. I, I'm <laughs> going to really enjoy this leaf because I'm, I'm going to go to sleep, and when I wake up, I'm going to be flying, and it's you know it's going to be it's going to be flowers and sunshine <laughs> for me. I, I think that they're just. I think I think that biology and physiology are chugging along, and I, I don't think it has any self-awareness of um, what's about to happen. And mm-hmm. um, uh, in the other direction, I don't think that a moth or a butterfly can sit around on a leaf on a on a nice afternoon and think back to when it was a caterpillar. I think that um, they're, yeah, I don't, I don't think they're, I don't think they're thinking back to the good old days. I don't think they're remembering um, back when they were munching away on that milkweed leaf. I, I think that mm-hmm. they're, they're living in the present. That's my, sure. that's my hunch. Which honestly, it sort of just strengthens the metaphor even more, you know, thinking about mindfulness, being in the present not thinking about the past or, or the future or dwelling on anything, just existing. Okay, okay. Metamorphosis is all about preparing for the next stage of life, and it's mind-blowing, don't get me wrong. But I mean, why do butterflies have such a weird technique? Well, the truth is, it's really not all that uncommon. In fact, that's an understatement. It turns out that complete metamorphosis is the most common life history strategy of any animal on earth think about it like this so most animals are insects um so we have more insect species and individuals than any other kind of animal something like 10 quintillion insects on the planet most animals are insects most insects undergo complete metamorphosis so most animals are in fact insects that undergo complete metamorphosis and if we throw in the um, the non-insect arthropods that also undergo metamorphosis, well, let's just even stick with the insects. Um, insects that undergo complete metamorphosis are the most speciose animals on the planet because it's an incredibly successful life history strategy. People are pretty comfortable with the idea that a caterpillar becomes a butterfly. But it turns out that ants and um, wasps and bees all undergo complete metamorphosis. Flies do. So a maggot is exactly analogous to a caterpillar. Think about little weird larvae before they become beetles. You should see a ladybug one. I'm telling you, it looks like a black and orange alligator. So the adults generally have wings. The, the larvae never have wings. And then there's a transitional phase in between. But it's a super efficient and effective life history strategy. What I don't understand is why is it so efficient and successful to have to spend so much time and energy transforming like that? It seems just insufficient. You've got to really zoom out to really appreciate it. Metamorphosis came about about 200 million years ago, and it's been so prolific for a handful of reasons. And honestly, you have to think about the energy spent in context. Think about it like this. You're an insect that has a relatively short life. You have to lay a lot of eggs to ensure the species survives, to ensure that you can pass on your genes. If you had to care for each one of those eggs, bring them food, things like what, well, like what we have to do, it would be incredibly inefficient when you're considering energy. What they've basically done with metamorphosis is they've divvied up the responsibility. You can kind of think of a caterpillar like a human embryo that's just existing outside of the womb. 
and taking care of itself. It's eating, it's finding shelter, all of those things by itself before basically putting itself back in the womb and coming out as a, well, full-grown human or ready-to-go baby. When you put it that way, it seems more sufficient than live birth. All organisms, all animals, and, and plants for that matter, um, undergo development from a single cell, right? So we have an mm -hmm. egg and a sperm fuse, and we, that's one cell, and then that one cell undergoes an amazing process of differentiation and turns into us, or a rose bush, or a mushroom, or whatever it is. Um, so there's a lot of cell division and differentiation that is amazing in and of itself. But what is so cool and what I think really grabs people about complete metamorphosis is that we have a free-living individual like a caterpillar or a maggot or a grub or whatever it is. And then that thing, which is wandering around and taking care of itself and eating and doing its own stuff, then um, hunkers down and undergoes a second development and so it sort of reinvents itself and I think that part of the reason that metamorphosis is such a, a powerful metaphor for people is that we can identify with the caterpillar and we're crawling around and doing our own thing and then we can still change ourselves and something mm -hmm. else um, so, so we're not just a, a little tiny egg that has no agency of our own. We, and I think the fact that the, the seeds of the transformation are present in the caterpillar is also kind of a powerful piece yeah. of the, the potency of the metaphor. And so admittedly, this episode is also a bit of a plug for the field of entomology. And here's part of why. So a few days ago, I got a message on Instagram from someone in Germany and it was 2 a.m. there, and they were freaking out because they had these little white insects, these little 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 tiny creatures in their flat, and they didn't know what they were, and they wanted to know if they could harm them. And they sent me the video, and here you have these these curled up little white creatures that sort of do this flicking motion and just shoot out of the camera view. Now those are something called a springtail, and they they thrive in moist environments. And just, just an aside on springtails, they're so interesting because they can fling themselves with their little tail, which is why they're called a springtail. The equivalent of if, say, I was standing next to the Eiffel Tower and decided to just jump over it. And completely harmless. But many people, they see a bug and the first thing they think is, is this going to hurt me? Is it venomous? What's going to happen to me? With metamorphosis, everyone knows that butterflies and moths do this, but they don't think about all of the other insects on the planet that do the same exact thing. And it's equally as fascinating for each of these other creatures. Each of these other creatures that have a whole armory of interesting facts and interesting lifestyles that you could learn about. So it's also sort of just a drawing a connection between these insects that people see as beautiful and peaceful and graceful and all the other ones that are honestly on the same level, might not look as pretty, but they're just as interesting. There's an awful lot of uh, metamorphic insects out there, and um, keep your eyes open because there's a lot of caterpillars and maggots and grubs and and things chomping away, and, and then they're hunkering down, and, and these 
winged adults are emerging and, and watching, seeing and finding and watching the transformation is a, a little treasure hunt that we can all participate in as we're walking around outside. You know, mm-hmm. there are a few insects that sting or bite, but most of them are just going about their own business, eating plants or eating other little bugs or uh, pollinating or whatever it is that they're doing, and, and they have no interest in bugging us. And, um, you know, I, I, I can think of nothing more pleasant to do. Oh, hey, would you look at that? A monarch landed on your mic stand. No, you, you know what? That That's a viceroy butterfly. Oh, man! Come on! No, I'm a beautiful monarch. Just look at my wings. Yeah, I, I am. That Exactly. You, you've got a black stripe right there on your hind wing. Just like a viceroy. Other than that, your mimicry, it's, it's nearly flawless. <laughs> mimicry? Why would I need to mimic anything? I'm a monarch. Wait, I know this. Um, uh, monarchs are toxic because they eat milkweed, so Vicery is somehow adapted to look similar to them to warn off predators, even though they aren't toxic themselves. Guys, come on! I'm so toxic! You know what? Sorry, not buying it. I'm with him. You know what, boys? I'm gonna level with you. I'm not a monarch. I'm undercover in a sting operation. A cover I've been in since birth and you're trying to blow so you know what i'm gonna bounce oh look at that see how she's flying away like that all kind of erratically see if she was a monarch it'd be more of like a like a beat beat glide but she's not so and now it is time for Animal Sound of the Week. Last episode's Animal Sound of the Week was a baby alligator. Wasn't it so cute? Okay, this week's sound, because it's our finale, we're going easy with it. Anyone who lives in the North especially, this shouldn't be hard from you and you've got no reason, no excuse not to guess. And if you get it right, I think I think uh, I think this time we will actually give out a pretty decent prize. We'll give a the wildlife coffee mug, the ceramic mug. Okay, okay. Here's the sound. Okay, Richard, are you, are you going to try? See, I would but I'm 20 years old and I can't whistle. Oh. 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 Okay. Well. Okay. That that's okay. That's okay. Sorry. <laughs> As always, send us your guesses on Facebook for a chance to win that coffee mug. Coffee mug. Coffee mug. Remember, if you have questions for us that you want, nay, need answered, especially now that we're working on the next season, you can submit your questions by sending us a Facebook message at the Wildlife Blog, or by clicking the green Ask TWL button on the front page of the website, the Wildlife Blog, or, you know what, you can always send me a message on Instagram at DevinTheNatureGuy, or by using the hashtag AskTWL. 
There are no such thing as bad or dumb questions. The whole of human knowledge came to be only after millions and millions of wrong guesses, near misses, and a ton of failure, so never be afraid to ask. Instructions on how to submit your questions can be found at thewildlife.blog forward slash podcast. The wildlife is listener, reader, and viewer supported and can be found on SoundCloud and iTunes. If you believe in what we're doing, you can show your support by becoming a patron at patreon.com forward slash the wildlife. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash the wildlife. Be sure to check out our Patreon page soon. We'll be adding some other things like video and a little bit of behind the scenes stuff. But when you become a patron, you'll also gain exclusive access to content and have the opportunity to appear on our show to ask questions or help read the credits. For sources and a more in-depth look at what we've talked about today, check out the wildlife.blog. As always, if we've made a mistake or got something wrong, please let us know with a quick message and we'll do our best to correct it. Special thanks to Dr. Martha Weiss for talking with us about her research, to Molly Smith, Alicia, and Chris Trankel for being patrons. Thank you for listening and be sure to subscribe to our podcast in the iTunes store and share it with your friends. As far as a special look, a special snippet at next season, I'm not going to give away too much yet. Not yet. Instead, I'm just going to say a series of random words left up to your own interpretation. Stampede. Asteroid. The powerhouse of the cell. Colonies lantern fish and so much more again thank you so much for listening to the first season of the wildlife we'll be back see you next season